Okay, well, hello everyone, and thank you for coming. I'd like to welcome today our speaker, Inga Vasvi. Uh, she's a social anthropologist who is currently pursuing a PhD at the Museum of Cultural History at the University of Oslo, Norway. Her research is based on long-term ethnographic fieldwork among Tibetans in Dharamsala, and her PhD project is concerned with the practice and performance of Buddhist rituals in daily life among lay people. She has also contributed to the volume Bodies and Balance, The Art of Tibetan Medicine, that's edited by our Oxford colleague, Teresa Hofer. Uh, in her talk today, Inga will discuss what she refers to as empowered objects, small objects such as amulets and charms that people wear on their person, and she will explore the usage, practice and significance of these objects in terms of their connection to Tibetans' everyday lives, concerns and experiences. So welcome Inga, and please start your sharing your screen. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Isabella. Okay, I will uh, try to share my PowerPoint. Okay, can you see it? Great. Okay, thank you and hi all. Uh, and thank you for the invitation and for giving me this opportunity to present my work. I appreciate any questions or comments that you might have in the end. Before I start my talk, I also want to add that my research is based on long-term ethnographic fieldwork. It's been a long process and I started on fieldwork in 2008 for my MA, continued with a field trip in 2012 for my PhD and with brief trips to the field in 2013 and 15. My main ethnographic field site has been Dharamsala, but I have also visited other Tibetan settlements in India, uh, as well as I have stayed with Tibetans in Kathmandu for about three months. Okay, so let's get started. Um, and I will start with ethnography. Early one morning during field work, when I was at home eating breakfast, Yangshan told Yangshan, a woman in the early 60s was one of the Tibetans that I spent most time with during fieldwork. Most of the Tibetans I interacted with and at, time, at times, time, times also stayed with was ordinary Tibetans, striving to make a life and a living in India. On the phone, Yangshan asked me to come to her home in the lower part of the town, Lower Garamsala, that same day. Last night, her husband Doji had shared with her the news that her maternal uncle had died. Her uncle had died of old age in his home in a Tibetan settlement in the outskirts of Bangalore, where also Yangshan and Doji had lived from the mid-1970s until they moved to the Ramsala in 2005. Instantly, Yangshan was preparing for immediate departure, she told me on the phone. And after Yangshin's call, I hurried to her home to keep her company for the entire day until the evening when she boarded the overnight bus to Delhi. Just before Yangshin left her home, she did some last essential preparations. She took off the clothes that she wore only inside her home, a blue flowered shirt and a green skirt. She then found a black and white woolen string with several small objects attached to it. She put the thread over her head so that the objects fell neatly over her chest. The objects did all contain Buddhist power. She covered the objects with a thick green chuba and her colorful pangan. As she dressed a transparent plastic bag filled with small 
orange seeds, nechum changne, fell from a chupa. Yangshin sighted and put the bag somewhere inside the bread. I thought she was ready to leave, so I picked up the bag and headed towards the door. Then I turned to look for her. Yangshin was still inside the living room. I saw her lightening a butter lamp on an incense stick. The smoke of the incense filled the room with a sweet scent. Next, she turned to the Shesham shrine with her palms pressed together. Her lips moved as she mumbled words I could not understand. With her palms still together, she turned the body towards another wall and the pictures of the 14th Dalai Lama and the Buddhist protector, deities Nechung and Palm Lama. I guessed that she prayed for a safe journey. And a second later, she turned to me and smiled. Now I'm ready. We left the house and Doji and I walked with her to the bus stand. From there, supported by Buddhist power, Yangshin embarked on a several days long journey over the Indian continent. In this talk, I want to focus on the small objects that Yangshin had attached to the black and white woolen string and which she carried as she left her home. <clears throat> the objects that Yangshan carried, as you can see in the picture, differed in, differed in design, but also in age, and the object's power was provided by different Buddhist sources. Leaving her home, she carried a great number of empowered objects, being prepared to meet potential obstacles with layers of ritual protection. Yangshin would not only carry these objects on a person when traveling, it was an integrated part of a being in everyday life. So when Yangshin left outside her home, even for daily errands, she carried on her body several small of these powerful objects and what I have chosen to call empowered objects. During my fieldwork, I learned that these objects were generally popular among Tibetans and I observed and learned by talking to people that people of all ages carried one or several empowered objects. And in this talk, I will explore how my interlocutors used and understood this practice of using empowered objects. To my knowledge, there is not a singular Tibetan terms that cover these potent objects with protective qualities. Commonly applied in daily conversations was the term Tunga, which I propose is a local variant of the Tibetan term Sungba, protection. Some people also simply use the term Chinla, Chinden, and Powered when referring to these objects. And I follow Jeffrey Samuels and understand Jinlab as a blessing power inherent in sacred sites, objects, and landscapes, deities, and encompassed being, and which contains the quality to transform mere things or useless objects into potent, effective ones. And Jinlab is in most instances the force that makes these objects potent and effective. The powerful objects' popularity among Tibetans is not a new phenomenon to Tibetans in exile. From his research in Tibet in the 1950s, René Danavarsky Vojkovic wrote about the potent object as, quotation start, the most important means by which Tibetans try to counteract harmful forces, quotation stops. These harmful forces, I hold, are not given and should be ethnographically scrutinized in regard to the context of study. The usage of empowered objects 
is also mentioned in more recent studies among Tibetans in exiles. For instance, by Je uh, Jeffrey Samuels, Kayla Deal, Tim Lowe, and Audrey Prost. However, in these studies, the usage of empowered objects is mentioned only in a passing and are not the focus of study, and thus leave an analytical potential of these objects unexplored. Um, and so I aim to contribute with new insights on the usage of empowered objects in daily life among Tibetans living in India. Above, I mentioned the English term amulets. This is the term used in a handful of books and articles, like one from John Belessa, Nick Douglas, uh, Skorowski, Austin Waddell, and Hildeborough. These studies mainly describe variations of empowered objects often based on Buddhist scriptures and do not explore the usage of empowered objects in people's daily life. In these writings, amulets and charms and talisman are terms applied. In this talk, I, used, I have avoided the term amulets and charms. Instead, I suggest the term empowered objects as an umbrella term to cover all objects infused with Buddhist powers. The term empowered object I propose shed light on the dynamic features of these objects. Jin love is an active potent force that can be generated and subsequently transform mere things into potent objects. Through techniques, the powers can increase, but through usage, the power of the objects can also be reduced. Thus, to emphasize this dynamic efficacy of the empowered objects, I conceptualize the production and usage as a technology. By technology, I'm inspired by the French anthropologist Jean-Pierre Vanier, who had used the concept technology to denote practices or performances rather than ready-made things, and which might be efficacious on matters and beings. Through production, the potent objects become conjured with protective and sometimes also enhancing qualities. And the practice of, of using empowered objects, um, when conceptualized as a technology, reveal how the potent objects are efficacious, efficacious and acted on the subjects themselves by shaping and transforming their subject subjectivities. I will now turn to variations of empowered objects. <clears throat> are terms used in day, everyday conversations. Tibetans also applied more specific terms for the different objects that a hair gather under the general umbrella empowered objects. Among the popular objects with infused Buddhist powers were Sumkot, protective circle, or Sumdu, protective cords. The protect, protective thread termed Sumdu are commonly produced and distributed at teachings and rituals, such as the color chakra rituals. It could also be acquired from, from Rinpoche. Sumkot <clears throat> are commonly produced in monasteries, but also in Mensikang as is depicted in the next slide. <clears throat> Among the empowered forces in this particular object is the mantra of Manjushiri, uh, as well as astrological calculations, but also blessed powder that consisted of peace, 
of clothing previously worn by the 14th Dalai Lama, as well as pulverized precious pills. Thus, uh, Tunga could contain several powerful ingredients. Tibetans that I interacted with carried the uh, Mensikang Tunga, for instance, due to, the year, to this year being the obstacle years uh, in terms of the Tibetan lunar calendar, and to protect against the many obstacles that could potentially occur during this particular year. Some people also had been advised to acquire this Tunga from Mensikang in order to keep a good husband and wife relationship. So the purpose of using unempowered objects were manifold. Then you also, there is also the famous uh, um, provided to Tibetan soldiers in the Indian army and which were also attractive among non-soldiers too. I was told that the Tsung sometimes were sold at the black market to a high price. And uh, this empowered objects was quite attractive, I found, particularly among men. Also a picture of the Dalai Lama or any other accomplished master, as well as ritual objects, such as a melon or a rosary, could be conjured with Jin love and transformed into an empowered one. Also clothes from Rinpoche could be used as an empowered object. Thus, the term empowered object denotes a number of different objects. Then I also see blessed herbal substances as part of this category, such as nechung changne and maniribu. Maniribu um, was produced at the annual many ritual that takes place in Sublakang in the Ramsala, and they're popular among many Tibetans that I met. And following the rituals, the maniribu could be obtained at the temple. Nechung Changne is produced during those instances when Nechung embodies the Kuten and touch and blue onto orange colored Bali seeds. The Changne could be obtained during this ritual, but it could also be acquired free of charge at the Nechung Monastery whenever one needed these objects. Uh, the, these blessed substances could be eaten, but people also carry them on their body, like putting one or several Changne on or maniribu in a small box and tied around the neck. Young people also told me that they used to paste Changne on terms papers in school, aiming for a good school result. And people also put them um, inside parcels that were shipped to other parts of the country. And um, let me also add that there are objects which have not been empowered from an outside source, but which are perceived to contain a natural inner power. Uh, these are still held to be powerful. And in this uh, group of protective objects are various precious stones. Let me go back. Here you can see <clears throat> the, the sea which perhaps was the most attractive one among the Tibetans I interacted with. The shades of the colors varied, and several Tibetans told me that they perceived that the sea, which was most black in color, gave the best protection. On the surface of the sea are circled patterns, meek eyes, and I was told that the sea with nine eyes had, been, had the best protective qualities. Other popular stones with protective qualities were turquoise, yu, you, uh, uh, churu, and pearl motik. 
noteworthy age was a significant parameter in terms of the stone's potency. The old ones were considered to be more potent than the new one. And people also told me that precious stones inherited from late family members added yet another potent layer to the old, already powerful object. Um, moreover, these objects could also be brought to monasteries in order to have a consecration ritual Ravna performed and transforming the potent objects into more powerful ones. Subsequently, also, the protective qualities would increase. This potential to increase the potency underlines the dynamic character of the object's power. Remember that I see it as, an, as a technology consisting of practices, not a ready-made things. Moreover, while some people only kept one empowered object, others carried a number of them, and often a mix between one object, between objects with innate or an infused powers. At other instances, what could one could conjure onto one object greater jin love, increasing the power of the object. A rosary is an example of this process. The Tibetans I interacted with often kept a rosary tanga around the arm or neck or in the hands, reciting prayers or mantras. The fingers touched one bead at a time simultaneously as the mantra was uttered, turning the fingers gently from one bead to the other as one finished the mantra and started repeating the mantra anew. The rosary was a significant device for daily prayer recitation in general to help honor the Buddhist potency and to count the number of mantras once one recited. The rosary was moreover not only a device in order to count the number of recited mantras. I was told that by the uttering of mantras the rosary was transformed into a powerful object with protective qualities. It became an empowered object in which the owner of the rosary became actively involved in the production. The recitation of prayers by a lay person was, however, seldom perceived to generate powerful objects. To increase the potency of the rosary, the rosary was commonly brought to sites of beings that radiated powerful jin love and to collect some of this jin love. Tibetans were constantly vigilant for every possibility to receive jin love and many kept their rosary ready at hand when the blessing power was within reach. For instance, people brought the rosary to rituals, such as the ritual event when Nechung embodies the Kutan. Passing, the net, passing Nechung, people held the rosary in their hands, ensuring that Nechung would empower the object too with its whistling breath. The desired potency was also accumulated from, for instance, a troll used by a Rinpoche. Throne uh, was perceived to radiate this Rinpoche's blessing. And in order for a lay person to incorporate some of this uh, blessing, a common practice is to touch their head as well as rub their rosary or any other object onto the blessed throne. For instance, once Yang Shen and I were in the monastery Suglakan during our rituals of Guru Rinpoche, a huge tanka of, a deity, of the deity hung inside the main temple. Approaching the tonka, 
The young Shin bent her head and touched the tonka with her forehead in respect, but also to gain some of the blessing invoked by the tonka. Thereafter, young Shin rubbed her rosary to the tonka too. But Jin Lab, she explained. This was a technique to garner Jin Lab that the tonka radiated. And I observed and I frequently observed this practice in temples or after teachings by a lama. Um, for another source of Jin Lab is near holy places to which Tibetans or to which one can perform pilgrimage. Uh, and significant at any significantly at any near a common Tibetan practice is our common practice is to collect stones, pinches of soil, and other substances empowered with the sites, Jin Lab. It is also possible to bring objects from home, commonly a rosary, onto which the Jin Lab of the sites can be garnered. For every encounter with holy places, powerful beings, and for each mantra recited, the potency of the rosary was enhanced. This idea of increasing the power is also underlined through the fact that beads from the Dalai Lama's rosary, I was told, was distributed from his office and to his followers. The bead were perceived to contain much, much Jinlab, Jinlab temple. And if one obtained one of these potent beads, this piece of the, this piece of the Dalai Lama's rosary would then be attached to one's own bead or tied onto a string or wore around the neck. Likewise, I also encountered Tibetans who added to their rosary precious stones inherited from late parents. Also, this practice, I was told, increased the power of the rosary. Uh, and in this picture, you can see um, it was taken uh, during Kalashaktas in Budgaya in 2012. And the statue had been empowered during the rituals, and people used the rosary to collect some of the blessing from the statue. I was told that it was such shampoo. And some Tibetans claim that among all uh, tungas uh, available, the rosary could be the most powerful and protective one. That was if the rosary had been in contact with and infused with Jin Lab, radiating from holy places, Rinpoche some powerful empowered objects. I have also aimed to show in this section that rosaries, the rosary's powers could be enlarged through several Jinlab generating and garnering techniques. And with the rosary in their hand, people became actively involved in the making of an empowered object. And moreover, the efficacy of the object was also based upon other parameters such as trust and the idea of keeping the object clean, to which I will now turn. So first of all, despite a great number of empowered objects available, people did not uncritically obtain or use potent objects. The practice was based upon trust or faith, thereby. Uh, and turning to my ethnography, I shall pursue this assertion and explore the parameters of trust in terms of the efficacy of the potent objects. Once in the home of Dojian Yangshun, Doje showed me an empowered object designed as a pill. He said, this is made of milk from snow lioness and is very powerful, such shampoo. 
dodgy play. Uh, yeah, a dodgy said. The pill was covered in black cloth, kept, and he kept it carefully in his palm. Marwan, who was present in the room too, started to laugh. He added, I don't believe in snow liners, Smith. And Dodgy started to explain, but was only halfway in the explanation when he stopped and kept quiet. Due to I suspected the laughter of Nawang. Dodgy put the pill on the shrine, and we did not talk more about the pill consecrated with snow liners milk. Instead, to underscore the significance of hate as a parameter for the effect of the empowered objects, Dodgy started to tell a story. This, the story Dodgy recounted was the famous story of the Tibetan who went on pilgrimage from Tibet to India. Upon this, his departure, his mother requested him to bring back a relic of the Buddha. The son, however, was unable to fill his mother's request. Yet he did not want to arrive home empty-handed. Thus he found a tutor for dog. Upon meeting his mother, he presented the dog's tooth as the tooth of the Buddha. The mother, who, was happily, who happily received the tooth, placed it on an altar and worshipped the tooth daily. And over the years, she received many spiritual realizations as a result of her religious practice. The story told by Dodge emphasized uh, trust of faith as a significant parameter in the usage and the effect of the empowered object. Tibetans do not gain them, do not uh, uh, gain the empowered objects arbitrary or are indifferent to the power source. It is, it is significant for the technology of making efficient, powerful objects. Thus, to wear these empowered objects on the body, I argue, it's also a performance of trust. Trust in the abilities of the Buddhist potency to empower. And here I follow Martin Mills, who has argued that trust is never simply a static belief about the world and therefore expressive. Instead, performance of trust is an essentially instrumental ritual act within the world. Let me turn to another parameter related to the, to the Tunga's efficacy. As already mentioned, a significant parameter for the objects to be effective is Jin Lab. Jinla was understood as an active and not fixed force, and subsequently how people engaged with it and moved with the potent objects on their body mattered. For instance, the powered object infused with Jinla were perceived to be negatively influenced by um, activities generating sopa, dirt, and pollution teeth. Yeah, generated by polluting substances and wrong handling of the object. Thus, notwithstanding differences in design, quality, and purpose, all objects had to be handled with care in order to not reduce the power. For instance, the, uh, these objects should not be stepped over in the same way as with all Buddhist objects. Such an act, I was told, would generate sukha and potentially reduce or cancel the potency, making them useless. Similarly, one should not put tunga on a chair or a pillow, which one normally would sit on, and one should better remove it when sleeping or during a sexual intercourse. Once, when I talked to a person who had participated in war carrying the tzutung, he 
He suggested that the powerful and powered objects could not protect soldiers who had been killed because it had been contaminated by activities that generated so death. So when we so when removing the protective objects from people's bodies, the objects were usually put on the home shrine, or any place in the room at a considerably high level to make sure that the objects were kept clean. Exploring different parameters in this, that is constitutive for the efficacy of the empowered objects show how the production and usage of Tunga can be understood as a process, as a technology and not a ready-made things. The production of the empowered objects and the use are intertwined and a dialectical coming into being. Uh, the idea that certain activities could potentially reduce the power of the object actually led to the object actually led the object to, to influencing people's treatment of it. Uh, it is the idea of correct way in regard to handling of the object as well as the trust when placed in it together with gene lab that is constitutive of the efficacy of the object. The ob and the object was not something added to religious practice. It was an integrated part of it and the user's everyday life. People told me that they felt that they're using the empowered objects. Still, the potent objects do not only hold an emotional effect. Wang Chuk, one of my interlocutors, emphasized this to me when he said, it is not only emotional, Tunga also have a real protective effect. I will now turn to some of the obstacles to the obstacles that the objects were to protect the users against. <clears throat> Previously, I showed the picture of the tunga provided by the astrology department of Mensikan. The objects provided from this department can be made as an all-purpose or tailor-made for a specific purpose. Such a categorization, I think, is relevant for all empowered objects. Specific purposes could be particular illnesses, and one of Yangshin's empowered objects can exemplify this point. One of the objects that was tied that was tied to the black and white wound thread that she carried as a sash on her body was one object covered by red cloth. She explained about the object while pointing to a wax that lied upon the table in her living room. She said, this wax is the seal letter, but the wax here, she nodded towards the object wrapped in red cloth, is more special because a lot of mantra has been recited on this wax. It's like a Z and protects from stroke and epilepsy. One time I fainted and my mother became very worried, worried for me. She asked my uncle who lived in Sikkim to visit a lama living in his vicinity. My uncle had to ride on a horse for two days to reach the lama and to get this tuna. Yangshin emphasized the difference between a meriting, that is the wax, and an empowered one, upon which a number of mantras had been recited. It also pointed out the usefulness of Buddhist potency in terms of recovery and maintenance of health. 
Also, the object was acquired a long time ago, and this exemplifies how the potency of the object was in, independent of place and time, as long as it was kept clean. Uh, as already mentioned, some people also carried empowered objects to counteract misfortune during their obstacle years, and others to counteract harm that might be caused by gossip, gossip or backbiting. This understanding is exemplified with the words of Pema. She said, when I'm out in the street, I always meet people who like me and who don't like me. The people who don't like me might backbite Ka Tangwa. My tunga protects me against backbite. Without the tunga, the backbite will make me nyokta, lazy, and give headache in the evening. Quotation stop. Moreover, the Ramsala is a site for a potential major earthquake. In 2012, the town experienced a number of minor earthquakes. And during that time, the empowered objects became significant too. Some people also started to sleep with empowered objects around their body and putting Nechung Changna under the pillow when sleeping. The objects were important too to protect against earthquakes, although people would in generally say that as long as the Dalai Lama lived in town, nothing dangerous could happen. The Dalai Lama's power was perceived to counteract even a major earthquake. And in general, in general, the people I interacted with navigated daily life with these empowered objects to protect against obstacles or anything unfortunate caused by Pachi or Nepa. Pema explained, to wear Tunga is very important. For example, let's say two people are traveling on a bus. One person is wearing a Tunga, the other one is not. Then an accident happens. The bus drives off the road and falls down a cliff. At that time, if somebody would survive the accident, it would be the person who was Tunga. Pema's example suggests that in those cases when major obstacles such as accidents are encountered, the empowered object will be protective and can even save a person's life. That is, if the person still embodies the life of sex. Similarly, the astrologer Tenson underlined the connection between empowered objects and the embodied life of Tse. Tenson told me, quotation starts, life is like a butter lamp. Time will come when the lamp's butter has finished. But with the help of Tunga, it is possible to hinder the butter from vanishing due to encountered obstacles, quotation starts. In other words, the empowered objects had its benefits as long as the embodied life was, was still existing and not exhausted. The empowered objects are as shown used for general but also for particular purposes. In any case, the practice of carrying these objects, objects they argue, can be understood as a technology where the object and, object and the users are actively involved. It is a technology applied to maintain health in a broad sense of the word, as well as the powerful objects became an empowering tool to proactively engage with everyday life, to gain a sense of control of the uncertainties related, for instance, to a major earthquake or otherwise, and in which the materialization of blessings provided both comfort, comfort and ritual protection. In the end of this presentation, I will turn to a story shared with me by a Tibetan doctor, 
Tashi. Tashi is a man in the 50s, born in Tibet, but escaped to India in the 1980s. Coming to India from Tibet as a teenager, Tashi spent his first years in India as a student at FATCV in Dramsala. Upon completing his studies, he was eager to return to Tibet, if only for a visit to his family. He told me that the return to Tibet was dangerous because he had escaped some years ahead and since he was not in possession of a passport nor visa. Notwithstanding, he set out on the journey and he had to cross the borders between Nepal and Tibet without any juridical documentation. This is how Tashi narrated how he was able to cross the border to Tibet. He said, all my family members stayed behind in Tibet, so I was alone in India and I missed them very much. Therefore, I decided to go to Tibet, even if I knew the trip would not be easy. It was even dangerous. I did not have any passport, so I became very nervous when I approached the border between Nepal and Tibet. I had heard so many stories of torture of Tibetans by Chinese officials. I remember that I worked behind some Nepali business people when I crossed the border. I was so nervous. In my hand and pocket, I carried Nechung Changna. While I crossed the border, I also requested Nechung for his help. And somehow, I was able to cross without any asking me questions. I felt so relieved. A woman from Hasa asked how I had been able to cross the border without any paper. I don't know how it happened. In my thinking, it was due to Nechung's power. Changna is tart shampoo. And it and I also carried Changna to give to my family in Tibet. Changna remembers the orange colored Bali seeds empowered by, by Nechung, the Tibetan Buddhist protector. And Tashi's story shows how, the, how Buddhist powers in materialized forms are used by people, also in the movement, mo movements in present day geopolitical realities. The empowered objects had a transformative effect on the social environment and moreover influenced the users' movements, perceptions and emotions through trust performed by recitation of prayers and the practice of using empowered objects, Nechung's power was perceived to bring protection and support in the border crossing between Nepal and Tibet. It was employed to enhance one's being and to navigate a political border regime. Also, people seem to have prayers ready at hand if misfortune threatened and one needed support and protection. For instance, the prayer of the female deity Dolma was popular to recite during troubled times. The prayer of Dolma reigns in the short mantra was perceived to invoke the goddess potency for support and protection to those uttering the words. I became curious why it was necessary to ca carry empowered objects on the body when the recit recitation of prayers seemed to encompass the same effect. Asking this question to Ngawang, he said, prayers are in some way the same as Tunga, and when Pacha or Nepa hit, Tibetans will go to temples for shopping. But since we cannot know when we are hit by Pacha or Nepa, it is better to use Tunga every day. Tunga can be seen as a double security. Oh, quotation ends. Tunga, sorry. Tunga can be seen as, as a double security or as a layer of protection. 
and as one of several ways to actively engage with and to work on local mundane concerns and the uncertainties of daily life. And similarly, to the understanding that the month of Dolma would evoke powers that affected the reciter, the listener, and the environment, so did the empowered object affect the users and the broader social environment. Small in size, yet potent with Buddhist powers, the empowered object were easily brought where everyone moved, and it was a way to empower oneself. This dynamic technology was moreover, I hold in part cons constitutive in the continuation of a Tibetan Buddhist life world. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Inga.